welcome to the weekly podcast of Trinity Life Church. We are a local church that gathers in downtown Toronto on Sundays and all throughout our city during the week. Now our mission is to help people discover their identity and destiny in Christ so we can influence our city, our country, and our world. If you're looking for a place to call home, we'd love to have you. Our services are Sunday from 10.30 to noon at Jarvis Collegiate. Enjoy this week's podcast. As uh, we said earlier, we're walking through Isaiah chapter 9 over this Christmas season. And if this is your first time back in church, or if you're someone who's just investigating the faith for the first time, um, I just want to assure you that... Um, you know, our church, we're definitely not a perfect church by any means, but we strive to be a safe place for anyone who, no matter where you're at on your journey, whether you're kind of reinvestigating a faith that you grew up in, or maybe you're from a different religion, or maybe you grew up in church and you're trying to give it another shot, uh, we just re- really try to be a church that um, really uh, loves God, but at the same time realizes that we're all on different ends of the spectrum. Uh, but also, if you're looking for a church in the city, um, we just want to invite you to consider Trinity Life to be that for you. And uh, our leaders would love to sit down and answer any questions that you might have about the church. And so that's what the yellow cards are for. And if you get a chance to fill that out later, that would be awesome. Um, as we walk through Isaiah chapter 9, very slowly, we're picking out other passages from Isaiah to kind of come around some of these uh, titles that have been given to uh, Jesus uh, long before he was ever born. And so I want to provide a real quick summary of what, the way that I look at Isaiah in terms of, and Isaiah is actually the biggest book in the, in the Bible. It's the longest book, 66 chapters. Uh, other than the Psalms, you can argue that the Psalms are, um, are a conglomeration of different books. Um, but uh, it's also been labeled as the fifth gospel, which means that there's so much content in the book of Isaiah that talks about the, the coming Messiah, Jesus, and so enough to brand it with the fifth gospel. But um, I want to give a quick summary of what I think, you know, you can look at um, uh, the book of Isaiah as. Uh, the book of Isaiah is like a summary of all the worst moments of the Old Testament and the future hope that God the Father will bring through his son, the Messiah, to his daughter, the church. So it's like, it's a summary of all the terrible things in the Old Testament. And then at the end of that summary, it, there's, also, there's always this injection, but there's hope. Somebody's coming. The hero's coming. Messiah's coming. And then God's going to create a people for himself. And so, in a nutshell, uh, that's kind of like the cliff notes of uh, the book of Isaiah. Um, but in Isaiah, everything terrible about the human race, especially the flaws and the failures of those who believe God, they're all in, uh, the, uh, in, in, in Isaiah, and they're actually brought to the public. See, God doesn't hide the flaws of his people. And for a, lot, for a lot of people that have been skeptical about faith and religion, Christianity in, in particular, uh, it's been because you see the flaws of the church. And Isaiah is God's way of saying, yep, I agree with you. Huge flaws with these people. Um, he exposes them, though, for healing. And that's why God takes time to expose the flaws of his people, because it's for healing. 700 years before Jesus is born, before Christmas, right, Isaiah writes all these stories about the failure of God's people and the prophecy of the coming Messiah. Uh, this is just history, but in 722 BC, this is all history, um, the Assyrians overtake the northern part of uh, Israel, which is modern day Samaria still. Uh, and then uh, right around the same time that Isaiah is writing, um, the Babylons are getting ready to siege the southern part, which is Jerusalem. 
um, in the southern part. So think about this. Think Canada has fallen and the U.S. is, is next. So that's kind of the situation where I'm not saying anything about, you know, I'm an American. I'm not trying to say that, you know, I, I think U.S. would fall before Canada would. Uh, yes, obviously. Yeah, some argue it has already fallen. Uh, but if you ask a modern Jew today, if you ask a modern Jew today, they'll tell you that Isaiah's time is the worst time in history. And what happened in this time period is the reason why Jews today are not fully biblical Jews. They can't follow the Torah perfectly because the city has fallen. The temp- there is no temple. There is no king. How can we be the people of God that God meant us to be? But the Messiah is coming. That's the hope. And so Jews say that the Messiah is still coming, and Christians have said he's come. But this is God's people in their worst moment. Have you ever had a moment in your life when you're like, this is the worst moment of my life. I don't know how I'm going to survive. You ever had one of those moments? Maybe you failed at something, you lost confidence, maybe you lost your job, your debt piled up, maybe you hurt someone and the guilt is overwhelming, maybe you lost a relationship and it's taking you months, years to recover from that. For Lynn and I, our worst moment happened back in 2009. And all of these things, I kid you, all these things happened all at once. Uh, because of failed plans in the recession, it was 2009, I was unemployed for seven months. But in the process, I was asked to uh, join a staff uh, at a church in Texas. So we decided to sell our home in Detroit, and we moved to, to Texas. But because of the recession, it took us six months to sell our house, and I lost $70,000 in the sale. Uh, that hurt. But it was okay, because things were supposed to be better for us. And so my mom and dad, they accompanied, uh, accompanied us on a 48-hour a car ride with three boys, and uh, that's my dad, and those are the, the boys in the back, and that right there is not a peninsula, that's my head, uh, <laughs> and so um, we got to Texas, and there was a beautiful house waiting for us there, okay, it's a beautiful house, I had 25 trees on my front yard, um, it was a beautiful house waiting for us, and I was excited, as evidenced by this picture, uh, <laughs> Linda was excited, as evidenced by this picture, and even the boys were excited uh, uh, to be a part uh, on this journey. So what seemed to be an exciting turn of events for us actually was just the pause. It was actually just the calm before the storm. It was the pause before things went from bad to worse to even worse. That week that we were moving, Linda's brother, Shua, had been in and out of the doctor's clinic because of a cold. It seemed like he was going to be okay. Uh, he uh, was even the star of his Christmas uh, play at church uh, the week before. Uh, but after Christmas, he was admitted to the hospital uh, with pneumonia. And he was 25 and, and healthy, so why worry? Um, but as the days went on, we kept receiving news that his lungs wouldn't clear up, so doctors had to intubate him so he could breathe better. Uh, and I just didn't feel right about the situation. And so we had only arrived five days, but I told Linda, I was like, hey, let's buy you a plane ticket. You go out there, be with him. You take care of his kids. He, has, he had two beautiful kids. Uh, and so that uh, his wife um, can, uh, can be with him. And so uh, that evening, we, five days into being in Texas, our boxes weren't even unpacked yet. Uh, I uh, went online and bought, him a plane, uh, bought her a plane ticket to South Carolina. And then... Uh, just a few hours after I purchased the plane tickets, uh, Linda's other brother, Shi Yi, uh, called me on my phone. I picked up, and what he proceeded to say, just it, it didn't compute to me. It, 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 it didn't land. It almost, by the time I processed what he said, I almost was knocked, the wind was knocked out of me. And I remember his words clearly. He says, hey man, he didn't make it. 
And again, I didn't compute this. And so I said, excuse me, what, what, say that again. What, what do you mean? He says, Vashua. He didn't make it. And this time his voice was trembling. He says, he died. And so it was just, by the time it made sense to me. Because you see, he's 25. He just started a business. He had uh, a beautiful wife, uh, two beautiful kids. Like, you don't die. If you're in that situation, you don't die of pneumonia. And so it just didn't compute. And so by the time I had processed everything, I was sitting down. And Linda saw me, and she knew something was wrong, so she came over to me. And how do you tell your wife that her youngest brother, the youngest of the family, 25, just started his business? How do you tell her that he died? And so I whispered to her. I said, Vashua, uh, his blood pressure dropped, and doctors couldn't raise it back up, and he died. And we embraced each other, and we sobbed. And it's so weird the things that you remember in these moments. But I looked over in the living room that we had just like, you know, got settled in. And the three boys are in the living room and my mom and my dad are there. And I just remember them being oblivious to you know, this news. And then in that moment, my dad looks up, he, you know, he's watching TV. He looks up from the TV and he sees me. And I see his eyes widen through his glasses and his arms drop. And he says, which means children, what's wrong? What's the matter? And so in that moment, he gave, me a, he gave me this, like, when he said that, it gave me, like, this moment of reflection. Like, all the synapses in my brain just started going off. And I started thinking, I started thinking to myself, okay, lost job, lost money, lost house, lost community, lost friends, and now lost family. What did I do? How are we going to survive this? And I, I like to say that we recovered quickly. Uh, I, I wish I could say that, and then we got strong, but we didn't because uh, the worst hadn't happened yet. And so, you know, we buried my brother-in-law, came back, and we tried to have some kind of normal routine, but a month after he uh, died, uh, we got news that my father-in-law was hospitalized and uh, wasn't doing well. And so I just, again, that feeling in my stomach. And you know when something is going wrong, you just, you know, most, maybe females have it more than us men. Uh, men just have gas, but women have this instinct. And you just know something's not right. And so I just I said to Linda, I said, okay, you go stay out there. And she's like, no, the boys are just starting school. I'm like, no, you go stay out there. You beat that. So flew her out there. She spent uh, uh, over two weeks with uh, my father-in-law. And uh, I remember uh, while she was gone, uh, the son, uh, so he, so what happened was he, she was with him. And uh, just all this stuff was like just going on, on in my head. And uh, I was like, we need to go be with, we just, we just need to be with him. Like, sorry, uh, sorry church. I know we just got here, but we need to go be with our family. So I remember that Sunday, um, uh, uh, before we drove out to be with uh, Linda and the family, um, which uh, uh, was very close to the end of my father-in-law's life. Uh, it, the service was over. Uh, it was a large sanctuary, about uh, uh, 1,200 people. The service was over, and me and the boys uh, just lingered. We just kind of walked around this huge sanctuary. 
I grew up in a small church, so I was still, it was very awkward for me to be in that size of a sanctuary, but we were just wandering around, and then the uh, youth pastor intern, his name was Daniel also, he actually came over to me, he saw just how distressed I, that I looked, and uh, he gave me a big hug, and uh, he, was a, he was a young guy, he was 23, I think, and this is completely off topic, but if you're a young person and you just, like a young man in particular, and you don't know how to do anything for kids, with kids, you know, you're just kind of like, I don't know how to do. There's so much that you can do to minister to their parents, and this young, this young guy did. He came over, he, he hugged me, and he said, hey, let me take your kids to the McDonald's so that you can uh, have some time alone. And so I remember uh, them leaving, and I was just processing everything that was going on. Uh, little did I know that in two days my father was going to die, but I was still kind of thinking through all that was happening. And I began to blame myself. I just began to, th- you know, it was every, every feeling. I was like, I, I blame myself. I blamed God. I was angry at God. I was angry at the situation. I was angry at, um, you know, everything that was going on. Uh, I was angry that we were broke and poor. And like, I was like very fuming uh, in this moment. As a matter of fact, if I were to think about it, this was my first ever real, like, Job-type moment. It was, it was in that moment where I felt like, how do I survive? It was my first, like, real Old Testament story kind of moment. Um, it wasn't the highs of the New Testament where you're, like, they're planting churches and revivals happening and the, the Holy Spirit shows up and people are being healed. But it was like the Old Testament story, like Adam and Eve being kicked out of the garden. It was my, like, uh, Adam having to deal with his dead son, Abel, story. It was my, uh, you know, Joseph locked in a jail cell story. It was Moses striking a rock. It was Samson disappointing people. It was, um, you know, my Abraham having to leave home story. It was the first time I felt like, in, like I related to this part of the Bible that most of us, we tend to ignore. And I remember in, in that moment that it was something that was so profound that was happening in my heart. And I knew that it wasn't going to be a quick fix. I knew that my situation, our situation as a family, what was happening with Linda, it wasn't going to be a quick fix. And that's the reality of uh, the Bible. That's the reality of the Old Testament. That's the reality of our before Christmas moments. A before Christmas moment is all of the things, all the crap that you go through before Jesus shows up. That's a before Christmas moment. Some of you, you know that. You're going through that. You've experienced that. You've weathered it. The before Christmas moment is all the things that you, you're like, I'm done, or I'm going to give up, or you're, you feel like, no, this isn't going to work, or you're, just, you're ready to just like throw it in, or you're, 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 you know, relationships are falling apart. These are the moments that we live in before Jesus shows up. Moments in our life that fit right in the Old Testament. These are the crazy stories that happen with you know, those of us who are Christians that critics point at us and they say, see, that's why I have a hard time believing because look at all the junk that you're going through. But these are the stories that are lining up the pages in the Old Testament. You see, our modern lives, it's, it's not so different from the Bible. It's not. It really isn't. You and I, we're on a journey. We're on a, a, a bigger story that hands us situations they don't have quick answers. They don't have quick fixes. And the Bible, 
The Bible admits that. The Bible doesn't try to be a quick fix. It doesn't try to give you a fast answer to every question that you have. It's honest like that. As you read through the stories of the Old Testament, the book of Isaiah, it's very honest. Nothing quick and easy happens in it. It offers healing, though. But it's not healing like the self-help books that, you know, some of us devour. You know, I'm not going to be shy about it. I read self-help books. It's helpful. But it doesn't promise that same kind of healing. It doesn't promise the healing that comes from learning from history. Um, I wanted to, to share a modern story of how the Bible is healing somebody, uh, of, a, of a woman, um, and um, her name is Rosaria Butterfield. She, back in the 90s, she was a pioneer in the third wave feminist movement. Uh, this lady's still alive. She's still writing. She's still teaching and all that stuff, so I make it sound like she's dead, but she's not. Uh, uh, but, but at the time, she was a tenured professor at Syracuse University in New York. Uh, she wrote textbooks on gender identity, queer theory. And for an entire, uh, her entire young adult life, she was an atheist and an intellectualist until the age of 36 when she began writing a book to critique the Bible on the oppressive nature of the Bible on women, all right? So uh, she studied it for herself, and just as expected, she found the Bible very offensive, or just as she had expected. But in the midst of her study and friendships with Christians, she discovered that her greatest hindrance to believing the Bible wasn't historical scholarship or its views on women. Her greatest hindrance to believing the Bible was in fact her pride that she rooted herself in her progressiveness, her sexual identity, and her academic accolades. And so about a decade later, after her conversion from atheism to Jesus, she writes about how God used the Bible to heal her, not of these other things, but to heal her of her pride. She writes this, How did the Lord heal me? The way that he always heals. The word of God got to be bigger inside of me than I. I discovered that the Lord doesn't change my feelings. I discovered that the Lord doesn't change my feelings. I discovered that the Lord doesn't change my feelings until I obey. What does she mean? Well, instead of reading the Bible, the Bible began to read her. Instead of critiquing the Bible, the Bible began to critique her. Instead of investigating the Bible, the Bible began to investigate her. God used the Bible to reveal to her her true identity. She wasn't just a tenured professor, an atheist, an elite, or a liberal. She was a daughter of an everlasting God who in the Bible at times enraged her, but she's discovered also that in times it engaged her. This was her struggle. And just like an excellent father oftentimes is in our life, God oftentimes enrages us, but oftentimes he engages us. And quickly before we dismiss like Butterfield as like, that's a well-timed illustration about an atheist become a Christian. Uh, before we dismiss it off as that, I want to uh, explain more of her story because in her biography, which you can read, it's called The Secret Thoughts of an Unlikely Convert you discover that her life moments and struggles become worse after conversion. Like it actually becomes much more difficult. And becoming a Christian, she lost her professorship, her lover, her community, and worse yet, her sense of being and purpose. And as you read her struggle through it, like it's agonizing. When you see somebody like in the act of like becoming something, it's so painful to hear and watch what they have to leave behind because that stuff is real. 
It's a grueling, it was like an ungrueling, like a grueling uh, process, like an unfolding drama that she talks about how the Bible became bigger inside of her. Her journey is one of a dosage of the Bible, a little bit of a, at a time, and she was a literary uh, critic also, so she knew how to read um, um, uh, literature. And it was just her taking it in a little bit at a time. And over time, those dosages began to bring healing to her. She no longer saw herself as the old person. She saw herself as a beloved daughter of God. Some of our social constructs, uh, they feel empowering and freeing to you at first. Some, some of the identities that we take on, especially in our 20s, that's a, that's a huge one. Right? It, used to be, it used to be, maybe the age of adolescence is, is extending, but it used to be in the teenage, we had teenage rebelling years, but it, it's more so in the 20s now, where that's where you go off to an elite university and you're taking on all these social constructs as your own and you're taking all these classes or whatever it is and, and you're taking on these constructs and at first it feels like it's empowering and it's freeing you but over time, you realize that, man, these things are just as oppressive and limiting as the things that, you know, like, like religion is or like these other ideologies are. And for those of us who have come to know Christ in the midst of this, you realize this, that these things actually were, uh, were obstructing what was underneath you. And you learn that the, the truest identity of who you are as a child of God is the most freeing, is the most freeing reality that you've ever experienced. The changing of one identity for another is often a violent process because it results in existential death. death. What do I mean by that? Because what it does is when you actually transfer uh, you know, meaning, uh, identity from here to over here, you were this, you were successful, or you were you know, always the best, or you were always this person over here. And when that identity transfers to being something else, and it, it's often like a violent ripping of it, uh, it leaves you almost like dead inside, existential death. The purpose and the meaning that you had before has to change. There's a mourning that is involved. For those of us who have gone through this uh, as an adult, you realize that when you became a Christian, there was a mourning of an old life that you had to leave behind. You had to relearn how to have a new purpose in life. This is all a part of it. And you have to mourn it and leave it behind in order to find a new purpose and a new destiny. The Bible helps us with that. It's the only narrative in all human history that's ancient enough to account for the world we have today. I mean, <clears throat> Rig Veda, maybe, yeah, people have said the Hindu scriptures of the Rig Veda, uh, it maybe is the most uh, ancient uh, sacred text, but if you accept that Job is a contemporary of Abraham, and this is way too much nerdy for you guys, I know you don't, you don't really wanna know this, but if you accept that Job, who is a contemporary of Abraham, was written in his time, then now you have in the Old Testament scriptures the, most, uh, the oldest and the most uh, <clears throat> earliest written sacred text that, um, that we have in human history. And so, um, uh, it's the only narrative of human history that's ancient enough to account for the world we have today, but it's also contemporary and real enough that it reveals to modern people our true identity, who we are. Who are we underneath all of these social constructs? The Bible gets us to, to that level. We're going to look at a short passage from Isaiah to see how God offers hope to those of us who are undergoing this similar transformation. So if you're in this season where you feel like you're going through a transformation, the Bible ha offers so much hope for you. And this is just one of those uh, tidbits from it. Isaiah 4, 2 through 4 says this, that in that day the branch of the Lord shall be beautiful and glorious, and the fruit of the land shall be the pride and honor of the survivors of Israel. 
And he who is left in Zion and remains in Jerusalem will be called holy. Everyone who has been recorded for life in Jerusalem, when the Lord shall have washed away the filth of the daughters of Zion and cleansed the bloodstains of Jerusalem from its midst by a spirit of judgment and by a spirit of burning. In verse 2, Isaiah writes that in that day, the branch of the Lord shall be beautiful and glorious. The phrase branch of the Lord, and Mike explained this a couple of weeks ago, is a prophecy that God's Messiah will come. And look what he says. Look what he says, though. In the day that the branch of the Lord shall be, oh, oh, the branch of the Lord shall be beautiful and glorious. When the Messiah comes, he's not going to be useful and handy. <laughs> he's not going to be a great like, advice giver or a problem fixer. When the Messiah comes into your life, the Messiah is beautiful and glorious. If you want to know if you've been transformed, you ask yourself, do you look to God because he's useful and handy in your life? Or do you look to God because he's beautiful and glorious? True transformation says, oh, the branch of the Lord God revealed to me. That's beautiful and glorious. It's a litmus test. When God becomes father to you, he isn't just useful. He's not your ATM debit machine, right? He's beautiful and glorious. In verse 3, Isaiah goes on to say, He who is left in Zion and remains in Jerusalem will be called holy. Everyone who has been recorded for life in Jerusalem. Again, the context of Isaiah, remember, is the impending destruction of the city of Jerusalem. Isaiah is saying that those who are rescued by Messiah will be like the people who are protected in the city during the siege. They will be set apart and protected for a future life in the city where they will undergo transformation and a reorientation of their heart towards God. If you belong to God, he is in the process of making you holy, setting you apart, reorienting your heart around his purposes. God would do that in the midst of your transformation. But you have to embrace this process because sometimes it hurts and sometimes it means that you're letting go of things and sometimes it means that there is less around you and sometimes it looks like you are losing community. But if you embrace the setting apart process where God takes you out of where you are into a place where he needs you to be to learn his purposes and reorient your heart around him, In that, you discover new purpose, new life, Isaiah says, for a life in the new city of Jerusalem. And then verse four, Isaiah says that when the Lord has, uh, shall wash, sorry, when the Lord shall have washed away the filth of the daughters of Zion and cleansed the bloodstains of Jerusalem from its midst by a spirit of judgment and a spirit of burning. And this is where the identity transformation actually happens. Notice that God's people are called, what are God's people called here? Daughters of Zion. And for all you manly men with beards out there, I feel it's kind of weird to be called a daughter, but that's okay. The reason why this is a, a term that the Bible uses, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a rare affectionate term that the Bible uses to describe God's fatherly love for his children. It's a metaphor of a loving father correcting and calling his wayward teenage daughter to come back home. Daughters of Zion. Father God sees a beautiful daughter with a future filled with vocation, responsibility, uh, uh, family, community, and even a heroic groom. But the reality is that she is a a wayward teenager right now, always experimenting in things that will cost her her life. She's independent, strong-willed, ever so willing to go against her own values to prove her point. But even then, God doesn't give up on her. 
The everlasting father does not lose hope. Instead, he washes away the guilt of her filth. He doesn't excuse it. He takes time to actually wash away the guilt. But what does it mean by a spirit of judgment and a spirit of burning? Because those words are very harsh, right? How does he do it? It's by a spirit of judgment and a spirit of burning. Like, what does it mean? So I'll say this to kind of make Isaiah's point. It's a bit excessive, uh, but um, uh, it'll make Isaiah's point. When someone is precious uh, to God the Father, and they are violently ripped away from him, okay? When that happens to God the Father, when someone who is very precious to him, like a daughter, like the daughters of Zion, when, when that is ripped away from him, God the Father is not a passive TV watcher. He's not crocheting in a sweater. God the Father must violently take her back. He must, think Liam Neeson in Taken. Anybody a fan? Come on now. I have a special set of skills, right? We all want that father. When he needs to get violent, he will. When he needs to be strong, he will be. When he needs to violently rip me out of a situation where I am glad to be in, by the way, dad, but he needs to stand firm that he does it. Who doesn't want a father like that? And so it, it seems harsh, a spirit of judgment, a spirit of burning, but it's a harsh situation where that, that the Jews, the, the, the Israelites are in. It's a harsh situation that we're in. How does it feel when your heavenly father is violently taking you back from a life that has stolen you away from him? Oftentimes people, people talk about the, con, the conversion or the transformation that happens when you become a follower of Jesus. We, we often talk about that as life-changing and it's beautiful and, um, uh, you know, I just felt so alive and stuff like that. And that's a valid experience. But some of us who have gone through uh, conversion as an adult, you realize that it's also, the flip side of that is it's also very painful and it's often very confusing at times. For those of us who are believers, you know that when God is in the midst of ripping us away from our bad habits and our sins and our preferences and our idolatry, you know that when God is ripping those things away from us that it's very hurtful and confusing when God does those things. Isaiah records his personal conversion experience in chapter 6, which I won't read. But in, in his personal encounter with God, his response isn't, wow, that was an intellectually engaging experience. That wasn't his response. His response was, woe is me, for I am lost and I am a man of unclean lips. He realizes that in order to go with God, he must admit his lostness and that he's dependent on other things. He's dependent on other things other than God. The phrase, woe is me, shows that Isaiah doesn't only have knowledge and information about who God is, but it shows that he feels the lostness in his soul. Like a kid who's lost in the forest or a kid who's lost at the mall or something like that, they don't analyze their lostness. Okay, Maybe, depending on their proclivities, they might, but most Normal kids, my kids wouldn't. You don't analyze, you don't start saying, okay, what time did I get lost? Or based on the trajectory of this road of travel, my parents are probably, you know, three hours out. So we, kids don't do that, right? What do they do when they're lost? They cry. 
the, the knowledge about God, the knowledge of, you know, that your lostness. Believer and non-believer, we're all in the same boat here. It has to, it has to cause something. It has to feel like something. It, it, it oftentimes feels like uh, it's, it's a weight. It's a desperation. That there's something about that that God will orchestrate and fabricate because that's how he gets us to cry out, Dad, help me, I'm lost. You ever, you ever met the person who is like emotionally just, they're, just, they're always like this? And um, part of it is because they're always like this. But part of it is because they have a bit of pride and they just don't want to admit that they need help. And so they will like sink in the boat because they're trying to figure out this thing before they scream out and say, I'm lost. Get, get me out of here. Just get me out of here. And there's something that happens internally. This is kind of like, if you've never felt it before, I don't wish it on you, you know, but you know what I'm, you know the feeling I'm talking about. You're just kind of like, help, help, right? It's the weight and the desperation of being lost, feeling lost. Here's a quick question that we can ask ourselves this morning, just to examine ourselves. What, what social or cultural identity have I taken on that is competing for my core identity as a beloved child of God? What, what social construct? What are, what are the things that we've learned? What are the things about our culture that we've taken on to ourselves that's actually, that's actually taking, competing for the, the main identity that, that the Bible says that we have, which is being a beloved child of God? What's competing for your attention there? The reason why I think this is an important question to ask is that if you go too far, if we go, if I go too far, if I went all the way into saying that my core identity was a pastor, I would be devastated if a few of you, even just a few, said, you're a terrible pastor. You see? If your social construct of who you are becomes the main primary lens through which you process who you are, you're going to be devastated. It's probably a good thing. It doesn't feel great, but you'll be devastated. You'll be lost in that. Because if you are the, uh, you know, if you, where's everybody feel? So if you are the progressive, uh, or let's do both spectrums, progressive, conservative, whatever end of the spectrum, if that is who you are, what's going to happen is that in another 50 years, other people are going to be more progressive than you, other people are going to be more conservative than you, and your time would have passed. And all that you believed and trusted in and all the people that you quoted would have become irrelevant. And so these are social constructs that you have to ask yourself. Is it competing for a large amount of not just time in my life, but like, like brain mental energy, how I define myself? Because I speak to, you know, without pointing out any one particular group, but I speak to you lawyers in our church, and hmm... You fight this battle hard, don't you? Like you do. I know you fight this battle really hard. Because if you're not billing, what is it, 80 hours you say? Holy smokes. I die if I was working 80 hours a week. <laughs> if you're not billing 80 hours, you're not, you're not a great, you're not a good lawyer, you're not working, right? So, I mean, there's physical consequences, but anyway, so are you, you going to define your life by those things? What's competing for those things? 
But it could be that right now, it could be that right now in this season that your worst moment is being orchestrated because God wants you to cling to him as father. He wants you to cling to him. And it's not you're clinging to him because it's making sense to you. Some of us, that's kind of our, that's our default. We're just like, we'll cling to God as long as he makes sense to us. No. Oftentimes it's you cling to God until the Messiah shows up and he makes sense of it all for you. Isaiah speaks about a day when God will send the Messiah to make things clear for his people. And then when Messiah comes, all that seems to be lost and destroyed actually turns out to be fruitful. And check what Isaiah says. I love what he says. That those things that were, are going to be refined and destroyed, Isaiah calls these things the pride and honor of survivors. The things that were refined, destroyed, the things that you struggled with will in turn end up being your pride, your, your honor, your glory of being a survivor, of being the one who clung to God. Isaiah is a part of the before Christmas passages in the Bible. Uh, before we wrap up here, I just want to throw out some of the Christmases. We have before Christmas, and I want to throw out some Christmases. Jesus with us, Christ with us passages, because these are destiny changing. They really are. This is just two, but there's dozens. In Matthew eleven twenty seven, this is after the Messiah has come. Jesus is the Messiah. Jesus says that all things have been handed over to me by my what? This is where you say, Father. Yeah, there, okay. And no one knows the Son except the, and no one knows the Father except the Son and, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Who, re, who reveals God as Father? Jesus. Jesus revealed that. Before, before Jesus came, God was creator and humanity was creation. After Jesus came, God was intimate father, and humanity was children. Jesus says, uh, again, in John 17, verse 25 through 26, and if you let this one sink in, it'll blow your mind. O righteous father, even though the world does not know you, I know you, and these know you that you have sent me. He's talking about his disciples, his followers. I made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. You see, Jesus came to reveal God as Father, but here's the mind-blowing thing. That the same love that God has always had for his son, Jesus, that love is the same love that he has for you. There is no difference in quality between the love that God the Father has for his son, his perfect son, Jesus, and the love that he has for you. So if you're like me, you're like, what, God the Father loves like the naughty child? Like the anal retentive child? <laughs> the doubting child? The never phones home on holidays child? Like God loves that child just as much as he loved his perfect child, Jesus? Uh, there is no naughty and nice lists uh, when you are in Christ. And the purpose of Jesus' coming, the purpose of Christmas is this, that we would realize that our primary Relationship with God is not servant, it's not slave, it's child, it's daughter, and it's son. Uh, I want to end our time with a New Testament story about how Jesus did this for a woman who was caught in adultery. Um, this is recorded in John chapter 8. A woman is caught in the act of adultery and is dragged by religious leaders to Jesus. 
And at this point, Jesus, uh, Jesus um, at this point, people were beginning to believe that Jesus was the son of God. The religious leaders were jealous. They tried to trap him by using this woman. So they invoked an Old Testament law that says that any convicted uh, adulterer would be condemned to death by stoning. So if Jesus was truly a man of God, a man of the law, then he would agree with them that, uh, and would, would prove that, uh, by agreeing with them, he would prove that he was no better than them. But if he didn't agree, they would charge him in the Jewish courts as someone who disagreed with the law. So they're trying to trap him. But this is how the uh, rest of this story plays out. We'll read it together. Starting with verse 7, it says, As they continued to ask him, he stood up and said to them, Let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. And once more he bent down and he wrote on the ground. But when they heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the older ones. And Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. Jesus stood up and said to her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She said, said, No one, Lord. And Jesus said, Neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on, sin no more. What happened here? Was Jesus being soft? Is the law so regressive and unpractical that you really can't enforce it? Neither of, the, neither of those things are happening. What happened, how did Jesus get away in this scenario? How did, how did he avoid this trap? You see, in this horrible moment for this woman, you know, despite what happened to her, you know, despite her own sin, in this horrible moment for this woman, Jesus created a father-daughter moment for everyone there to see. It was a father-daughter moment that was so powerful that it changed the perspective of everybody around that situation. And when they looked at her, they couldn't condemn her, even though she had done things that would have warranted that. But in Jesus' grace and authority over her life, they, it was like this, fa- only your father can have authority over your lives at that level. What Jesus does is he demonstrated that father-daughter moment, and it was so powerful that it changed the way that they all felt about the situation. It wasn't that Jesus was being less harsh on her. It wasn't that Jesus wasn't being biblical about her sin. But when God the Father comes into our moments, in our worst moments, and when he shows up in power and when he shows up as father of the situation, it changes the way that you look at everything. It changes the way that you look at your own sin. Um, you think about this, fathers, uh, what would you have done? What would you have done in that situation? Do you condone her or do you condemn her? I think Jesus was saying that God the Father was doing this as a father. He's saying, daughter, it pains me to see you this way. I'm keeping the consequences of your sin from falling on you in this moment. Receive this grace as unconditional love and be changed by it. I remove the identity and label of adulterer off of you. You are a daughter. Go and live that new life. This wasn't just a father-daughter moment, though. It was a brother-sister moment as well. It was a setting of the scene for 
a heroic act that chapters later you'll read um, that something that only a chivalrous brother would do for his siblings, for his sister. Chapters later you see Jesus upholding the law for her sins when he dies on the cross for her. He dies the death that she should have died. Jesus dies the death that you and I should have died. Our sins never go unpunished. It's just that we don't get punished for them. God's perfect son does. Our perfect brother takes the fall for us. It's like Jesus takes a page out of Isaiah and he rips it out. The the passage that we read earlier from Isaiah chapter 4. It's like he takes that passage that says, The Lord shall have washed away the filth of the daughters of Zion and cleanse the bloodstains of Jerusalem from its midst by a spirit of judgment and by a spirit of burning. It's as if Jesus rips that page off out of Isaiah and says, I'll do it. I'll do that. He did that for her. He did that for the church. He did that for you. He did it for me. He did it for the world. On the cross, Jesus took the spirit of judgment. Jesus took the spirit of burning for her. He did it for me. He did it for you. You and I are daughters of Zion. You and I are the woman caught in adultery. And Jesus is our heroic older brother. Don't let any of your before Christmas moments hold you back. Look and see how beautiful Jesus' sacrifice is. The Bible is a summary of all the worst moments of humanity and how God the Father has brought hope of a future, of a new identity for his daughter, the church, through his son and Messiah, Jesus. And this morning, I want to pray with us, and I don't know the struggles in your life. I don't know your before Christmas moments. I don't know what they entail. I'm sure if you shared them with me, it would overwhelm me and I would be, tri- be depressed for a month. Um, but don't let those moments hold you back from the greatest and the most truest identity that, that is true about you, which is you are a child of God. And it doesn't start by saying, okay, well, let me get my life right now then. It doesn't start there. Let me increase my church attendance. Let me increase my church volunteering. Let me increase my charitableness. No, it doesn't start there. It starts with allowing the Father to wash away the filth in your life by loving you, by opening up the hurts and the wounds and saying, God, if you can love me there, if you can love me here where it hurts the most, I think I might just transform. Let's pray together. If you believe that God um, and his son Jesus removes your filth and your bloodstains through his death on the cross and guarantees you a relationship with God as Father, can you just say amen with me? Amen. 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 If you can't say amen, or if you didn't say amen to that, I want to create a moment for you and give you the opportunity to say amen.
If I can just invite you this morning to trust that in obeying God's word, that your feelings will change. The answers that you are seeking for, they may or may not get answered before you believe. But believing and trusting God is an act of volition. It's an act of the will where you say, I trust you, God, and I trust you, Lord Jesus. I receive what you've done for me on the cross as personal for me. And I receive God as my Father. And if you can pray that right now, you can say amen with us. If you want to know more about the TLC community, check out trinitylife.ca or you can find us on Facebook. Of course, we'd way rather meet you in person, so we hope to see you at a service soon.